Greetings, listeners and listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports, just to name a few. And we originate from and connect the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. We want to continue our return to civility for the day and this is these these are all good folks but i like this one especially if you've been on an airplane recently and you know how those things operate when you're trying to get off keep moving when you're exiting a busy plane elevator or room don't stop to pull out your cell phone or chat with a friend get outside the door and move to an open out of the way place (laughs) so that others can continue on to their destination without having to wait for you Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously happened to you oh, recently. Oh, how many people, they just stop right in the aisle where everybody's walking out, stop to say, hey, and they want to talk to somebody or get on the phone. They just stop dead right there. Now, I've gone to Disney World, too. <laughs> That's a really rough one because the whole family is like in a line. <laughs> You're playing like, Red Rover with you. I know. And it's like, all right, we got to try to get around these people. You got to go like five blocks around them to get around them. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, Come on, you guys. Can you do it like travel in twos instead of eights? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so okay. do that, folks. Keep yeah. moving when you're exiting yeah. a busy plane, elevator, or room. What a good idea. Let's return to civility. You mean but- the one that's been eaten by your dogs about six times? My dog, Bear, he loves this book so much, he ripped off the first 32 Return to Civilities, and he likes them so much, he munched on them. Came back for more. When somebody says, my dog ate the homework, Uh Mark, you can see my book. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I know. He he ate those. This would be a good uh, birthday present for you, I guess. It is. I got that book as Mm -hmm. a present from someone. Oh, okay. And over the last, since the beginning of the show we've been reading return to civilities john sweeney he's the author of that with the brave new brave new workshop project and it's a speed of laughter project for him he is the owner of the brave new workshop comedy theater in minneapolis minnesota it's the oldest satirical comedy and improv theater in the united states in addition to being a comedian john's a keynote speaker corporate trainer author of four books For more than 15 years, he and his company have inspired and ignited cultures of innovative behavior within America's biggest businesses, and we're fortunate to have him on the line. John Sweeney, welcome to St. Louis In Tune. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Can you hear me okay? We can hear you great, John. Thank you very much. I love the things that you do in the Return to Civility book and want to dig into a lot of different topics because I'm curious about your role as a comedian, and I would say like an improv person, and how that all relates to your business uh, portfolio that you've done and that you do. So where did this all start? How many hours do you have? Um, (laughs) uh, It depends on what chapter. I've had a a bit of a a wonderfully odd life. So I started my life on a dairy farm outside of Madison, Wisconsin, and I have seven older brothers and sisters and hardworking parents. And so we we milked cows and did that. And Mm. My, my parents said, well, the one thing we want to make sure is that you, you don't have to do this, so please, everyone, go get an education. And so I, I did some corporate stuff after college. I, I worked with a company that represented corporations and their real estate needs, and so I got a taste of that for about seven years. And then I fell in love with improvisation, really as a pastime to take a break from the daily grind of corporate world. 
And then once I started doing it, realized that maybe it was more of a calling than a hobby and really just fell in love with not only performing, but what the improvisational values and even like the practicality of what you need to do to be an improviser on stage. I really was attracted to all that. So I did the kind of jump off the corporate ladder. I, I left the 40th floor of the IDS Tower in downtown Minneapolis and sold my car and sold my house and became a improvisational actor in 1993 and, and did that full time and then ended up buying the Brave New Workshop Comedy Theater, which is where I started with my wife, Jenny. We bought it in 1997. And uh, the reason we got into kind of the corporate innovation was pretty simple. It was really tough to <laughs> make it in the theater world. We, had a, we bought the theater from this wonderful man who started it and ran it for 39 years. And right after we bought it, the internet hit. So Netflix, uh, Hulu, TiVo, all that sort of stuff. And so all of a sudden we realized we needed another income stream or we weren't going to be able to keep this business going. And my wife had been running our school of improvisation and we realized most of the people who were taking improv classes weren't trying to perform improv. They were using this as a life skill, as a business skill. And that's where we had an aha moment and uh, and started doing corporate training with an improvisational mindset. And that was about 3,200 keynotes ago and 20-some years. And so we built a, a nice little business helping large organizations embrace this improvisational mindset. And then uh, the civility thing just came along by chance. I can tell you that story later if you wanted to. I was laughing because <laughs> I, I was in Phoenix yesterday, so I was experiencing the airport <laughs> you really have to t you really have to tie your shoe right now and that's, <laughs> that's it that's it can't you move to the left maybe the right yeah. <laughs> like three feet yeah Just that's all it would bit. take all right um, and i was laughing too because uh, real quickly the process of writing that book i wish we could say that we were all so civil and we just recorded all the wonderful things we did but after we came up with about 50 of them we realized we weren't very good at being civil. So the way that we wrote the book in, in some ways was we thought of all the things that were horrible that we hated, and then we just reverse engineered the grammar. Wow. So, so, that, so instead of complaining, we just said, here's what we could do. But yeah, that, but that, that works, really gets that me. works also like yeah, that, you know? Yeah. Good for you for trying to be a better person. <laughs> we're still trying. <laughs> it's I, a work I, in I, progress. Yeah, especially if you have children. So my wife oh. and I have uh, 18-year-old and 16-year-old boys, and they're they're fine young men. But about you know every three days, they don't now they don't even have to chastise me with the words of how I'm being uncivil. <laughs> they'll just say the number of what's in the book. So they'll just say, "Dad, one seventy-two, Dad, one seventy-two. I'm love like, it. "Okay, I guess I love that's it. great." I'm not following my book. Yeah. So when you talk about improv, define that for us. Because people hear that, they think about maybe jazz improvisation or improv at a theater or something like that. Discuss what that what that is from your vantage point. Sure, and in general, it's it's a mindset that says I'm going to I'm going to without a prior plan create something, and typically I'm going to create that with others. I'll just give you the two sides of where we've experienced it. So on our in the theater, it's pretty simple. We we have 204 seats at the Brave New Workshop, and we stand in front of that audience and. And we ask them what's important to them, uh, but very specifically, what would they like us to build on stage? What's the, the instant theater scene they'd like to see? And our audiences are, are mildly intoxicated because we, uh, we have good, good margins on gin and tonics, and so it's encouraged. I think on our beer glasses it says, remember, the more you drink, the funnier we'll seem. And so we we have an, an odd audience compared to most customers, but we ask voice of customer, and they'll shout out something. They'll usually try to stump us, so they'll say 
silly things like, we'd like you to do a scene about Hillary and Trump in a canoe fixing health care or something like that. And, and then what we do is we just instantly, without hesitation, without strategy, without prior planning, we build something for them. And we build that because we've created a culture on stage that's full of safety and acceptance. And then we build that because we've all created a mindset that says, even though the next three minutes of my life is going to be filled with ambiguity and change and, and not really knowing what to do next, I'm going to continue to work with others towards a solution that serves our customers. And so that's what we do you know, at the theater. And then in the corporate world, it's very similar, right? We work with organizations and say, it's a constantly changing environment from a competitive standpoint, from a technology standpoint, from a world safety standpoint, right? Whether it's the pandemic or, or Ukraine. And how can we create a mindset that allows us to perform even though we don't have the consistency or the factual data or the we know what to do next information that our brain really wants? Our brain wants to know exactly how things are going to happen. And when it doesn't know that, it, it sends us chemicals to make us be in a mindset of fear because it's trying to protect us. So what we do with our clients is say, how can we practice behaviors to override that mindset of fear and live more in a mindset of discovery or a mindset of improvisation. So in short, that's how we look at improvisation. And, and I like the short version, but we you know we like to dig on this show a little bit. So <laughs> I, I want to dig a little bit with that, with a couple different questions. And, and the first one is, are we too constrained in our thinking? Are we too robotic in our thinking or too, what's the word I want to say, trained to think a certain way and not trained to think innovatively or think outside the box, if you want to use those kinds of terms, or in an improvisational manner? Yeah, we approach it in a couple ways. One is, and this was, came from a personal kind of revelation I had, I, when I, we did a lot of research in the last book to understand the neurology of this mindset stuff. And so when I realized that my brain was built, and, and especially the part of the brain that controls our mindset, the, the really old and, and simple part of our brain in the back of our head, that's what controls the mindset. And since it was built to keep me safe, and it was built to detect risk and threat and then try to convince me not to walk in front of the bus or not to go outside the cave because there's a saber-toothed tiger. It was a nice aha moment to stop blaming or shaming myself when I wasn't thinking outside the box or I wasn't excited about new endeavors or new ideas. I, I could then say, oh, I have a healthy brain and it's doing what it was built to do. Then I can empower myself to say, and by the way, that brain isn't necessarily a great tool to use to develop a mindset that's going to allow me to think innovatively or take risks by creating new relationships with different types of people or new behaviors that could expand how I can serve the world but might seem a little bit fearful or risky at, at the time. So the answer is that, yes, we're built to think that everything is a threat, and then this will be an opinion, and, I, and it's not necessarily based in fact. It's just based in observation. But I do believe both our education system and then how we work over the years has developed into a system that promotes a logic, linear, provable, safe, repeatable, and reliable ideas that, that we can execute to ensure profitability and small incremental margin increases. And I don't think we have a lot in our education world or even in our business world that helps us simply practice that other part of our neurology, which is creative and curious and risk-taking, that sort of stuff. So I think over the years, uh, I noticed that a five-year-old will be much more apt to take innovative idea risks 
than a 55-year-old. And so I think we progress away from that kind of innovative mindset. And so hopefully we can remind people that we're all innovatively perfect. And if we practice some small things each day, we can get back in that that mindset shape or that mindset fitness. You talk about equilibrium a little bit. I'm going to use another word there. We used to, people don't like the word change because it's threatening based upon just what you've said. And when our norm can become things that are that have disequilibrium, it makes change something that we move and, and flow in and out of. I was looking at your From Fear to Discovery, the big five things. Relate what you just said to that, or does it relate in a way that's going to make sense to listeners? It does. So, so the big five you speak of are just simply five behaviors that over the years, we worked with 127 of the Fortune 500, and, and like I said, we've done over 3,000 engagements. Over the years, we've learned from our clients what are, I don't know, five basic behaviors that if we practice them, we'd be a little bit more fit and more likely and more sustainable in a mindset of innovation instead of a mindset of fear. And so when it comes to this kind of equilibrium and change, that's really the, the tool of practicing to reframe things. So if you just reframe that word change into growth or education or strengthening or stretching, now, now it's not that horrible word of change because you know, change is unexpected and full of ambiguity and, and probably risk, probably, right. e- even though we don't really know that it's going to be risky. So we use the reframing tool to be able to practice. I can reframe uh, change into something else. We got lucky when we first uh, wrote our first book, which, which was Innovation at the Speed of Laughter, and the folks at Starbucks had a program back then where they would put a quote from your book on, on 12 million Starbucks cups. And, and so the quote they chose was, that improvisers don't look at change as an obstacle. We look at it as fuel. And so we're constantly asking the question, what can we do to incite change? So improvisers on stage are actually trying to create change because if our audience doesn't have pretty drastic change in what we're doing about every 10 or 15 seconds, they'll get bored. The, the current YouTube view is 7.2 seconds. So people aren't going to stick with you very long in the entertainment world. I'm not suggesting corporations change every 10 seconds. Wow. Uh, I don't think that's practical. Mm. But yeah, it's reframing how we look at change and then practicing being comfortable with the uncomfortableness that change brings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, listen, defer, judgment, reframe, declare, and jump in as the big five, and then you have like fear-based behaviors where people check out, they criticize, they whine, they conceal, and they stall. And I I can see in the educational world, (laughs) in the corporate world, every world, in the government world, (laughs) especially in the government world, where you're trying to get people to discover things rather than fear them. And, And you do that through humor? Or how do you break through, break the ice in some of these organizations to really help them understand that? Yeah, we, we approach it. We use humor. Think of humor as um, the elixir or the lubricant of the learning or the transformation that the learner can make. It just seems if you can get people a little bit more relaxed and a little bit full of levity and positivity and, and laughter brings that about and sends us some good chemicals when we laugh, that then they're generally more um, able to learn and open up their minds. But what we do is we, we start out with, in the corporate training at least, we start out with this kind of neurological definition of mindset to let people know 
it isn't this mysterious how you show up at work and people have different personality styles and ENTJs do it better than INTJs or if you're more in the upper right-hand green corner, you're. But those are all, I guess, true and that sort of stuff. But the truth is our brain's trying to keep us safe. And when we can just get it to that point, and then we realize the second part is that we are what we practice, are what we practice, then we can encourage them to practice things, whether it's the improvisational exercises we in our workshops, anything throughout their day, if they can practice those big five behaviors to be able to listen a little bit better, to defer judgment, to jump in, and not those other behaviors, they're more likely to become in a mindset more regularly that's like that. And that's not rocket science. That's I think of my mother, uh, God rest her soul. She died when she was 93, and what she practiced was what she was. So at her wake, people would say, your mom was so generous. She was so positive. She was so compassionate. If you spend time with her, you realize what she did throughout her day is practiced being grateful and full of positivity and full of compassion in small micro behaviors. Yeah. So we become what we practice. And, and it's tough because the brain's always trying to actually practice the other things that will keep us safe, which means they don't want us to take risks. Our brains don't want us to take risks. So that's why we look at it as a bit of a seesaw or maybe even a battle between the mindset behaviors we're practicing and the mindset behaviors our brain would like us to practice because it wants to shut us down. And I don't mean that, you know, as a, as a judgment of our wonderful neurology, it's just simply how it works. Now, how did that battle take place in your head? You were on the 40th floor of the business that you were on and you left that. And where did that come from? Did you have part of that to begin with uh, before you became in charge of doing what you're doing now at Brave New World? I did a little bit, but it was, again, mostly because what I had practiced. When you're the youngest of eight, you've got these seven siblings who were able to go out and test the world before you were. And so you were, I was probably the most risk encouraged in our family because we had seen a lot before. Here's what happens when, you know, you do this and you do that. So I've always been a, a risk, and, and I don't mean in my DNA, I guess I've always just practiced risk taking. And then I was, I was afforded a, a set of teachers and a set of, of of parents and, and mentors that encouraged me to do that. I, I was the kid who always, they said, you're going to be a leader. You're going to be able to do great things. And I've always been grateful for that. But I've also been aware that's a very rare situation. Many people are told, always do the right thing. Don't take too many risks. If you don't get good grades, your life will be ended. And so I, I just organically practiced a lot of those risk-taking behaviors. But I have to tell you, when it came to, oh, you're seven years out of college, you're making more money than you ever thought you're working for a really prestigious firm and you've got all these things, you've done what you're supposed to do. And now you're going to quit your job and take a job as an improvisational actor for $200 a week without insurance, which is going to cause you to sell your home. That wasn't perfectly accepted by my brain. The quick story behind that was a gift that I was given that, that I'll always be grateful for. And it, it came from an odd place. So the, the man who ran that firm would be the other side. He was a, a lawyer by trade and was he needed analysis and proof before he ever took a risk. He wasn't a natural risk taker. But he looked me in the eye and he said, you do a good job for this firm. This is something you're really passionate about. The worst thing that can happen is you're going to go try this improv comedy things and you're going to be horrible at it. And then you can come back to work here in a couple of years. Wow. And so I have to say, as much of a risk taker as I was, the gift that he gave me that said, maybe there is some risk in this, but there's also a safety net, that is what allowed me to jump off the corporate ladder and go follow my passion. Okay, that's super, because we're going to come back to that, and I want to talk about Dudley Riggs a little bit and some specific lessons that you got from him. We've been talking to John Sweeney. He is the owner 
of the Brave New Workshop in Minneapolis, and he is the author of the book that we read every at the beginning of every show, Return to Civility. This is Arnold Stricker with Mark Langston of St. Louis in Tune. You're listening to the U.S. Radio Network. Each time that we plan a show for St. Louis in Tune, we strive to bring you informative, useful, and reflective stories, as well as interviews about current and historic issues and events that involve people, places, and things. And while St. Louis in Tune originates from the Gateway City and covers local topics, we also connect what's going on nationally as well. Our topics cover a wide range of arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, sports, and that's just to name a few. We know there's many radio stations, programs, even podcasts that you could be listening to, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to St. Louis In Tune. If you've missed any of our previously aired programs of St. Louis In Tune, simply visit stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. There, you'll find every show from our first to our most current. Use the search engine to look for a show that might interest you from one of the many topics that we've covered. And drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. You can do that at stlintune at gmail.com. That's stlintune at gmail.com. St. Louis in Tune, heard Monday through Friday on the usradionetwork.com and many great radio stations around the U.S. and, of course, right here in St. Louis. And don't forget, check out our website, stlintune.com. That's stlintune.com. I feel like I'm back in the uh, 60s when I hear this music. Yeah, I really need to go get some lava lamps and put them up here in the studio when we play that music. Because okay. it's, it's perfect for that. Wow, man. Okay. <laughs> wow. wow. Totally. We're talking to John Sweeney. He is the author of the book We Read Every Show, the saying we read from, for every show, Return to Civility. And, folks, if you don't have that book, check it out. It's called Return to Civility. It's from the Speed of Laughter Project. You can go to speedoflaughterproject.com and check that out. Also, John's website is bravenewworkshop.com. And I, I like the book, John, because you have every day. <laughs> I don't know how you picked every day, but sometimes it seems, wow, that is the perfect thing for today. <laughs> I don't know. It's I don't know. Yeah, it, it is a bit... It's a bit serendipitous. We came up with 500, and then we edited it down to 365. And, you know, that's what that's how I use the silly little book. I just open it up and flip my thumb through it and stop wherever it stops. And I think sometimes those serendipitous messages are the ones that, that hit the, the hardest. And I do have to say, and this is all on us for not giving you the right information, please know that, that I'm unfortunately no longer the owner of the Brave New Workshop Comedy Theater. We sold it in November, oh. and I can tell you that whole story, too, because there's some lessons in, in that. We're so grateful that we were able to sell it. But... We, uh, we hadn't missed a weekend in 62 years. Dudley had run it for 39 years, wow. and my wife and I had run it for 25 years. And then COVID hit, oh, and man. so we closed our doors in March. And unfortunately, the theater in downtown Minneapolis is still boarded up. Oh. But I believe that the uh, the show will go on, and the next show, the uh, first show after the pandemic, will open up here in the spring. Oh. So it, we had to really kind of drink our own Kool-Aid, right? Here we were. 25 years as a couple running this wonderful theater in downtown Minneapolis and giving live speeches. And then when the pandemic hit, everything that we did involved getting large amounts of people into small rooms. 
And mm. so every part of our business went away in, in one week. We used our own information. We reframed and we kept positive and we kept asking the question, how, what decisions can best serve the world that we live in? And we were able in November to transfer the ownership of just the theater part of our business to the Hennepin Theater Trust, which is a wonderful Minneapolis organization that already runs three theaters in the downtown neighborhood. And so they'll just add the, nice. the Brave New Workshop, and they are going to continue the tradition. And we're so grateful that we were able to do that. You talked about, before the break, you talked about some lessons that you had learned from Dudley Riggs. And can you amplify on that a little bit more? And as, as he sold the workshop to you? Yeah, it was it was one of those amazing days. I, I remember I was actually in Chicago at the time doing work for the Second City, and Jenny and I were living there, and this would have been 1996. And the phone rang, an actual phone on the wall with a cord, and I picked it up, and it, it was my dear, dear friend Dudley, and he very privately and very humbly said that uh, that he thought it was time for him to sell the theater, that his health was a little bit in question, and he was just wondering if he was the best person to run it. And, and it was a, a true sign of how... He was a leader of service and a, a, a man of service, and that he wanted me to buy it. And and I was just kind of unbelievably uh, awestruck and humbled at the same time. I was in the midst of building my own acting career and thought that's where I wanted to do. And we had just done a, a sitcom together, that, and I had an apartment out in, in Hollywood and all this sort of stuff. And so I actually tried to get um, another theater organization to buy it, and, and they weren't really interested in keeping it in the same tradition that Dudley had started. And so, so I said, okay. And so that we bought the theater in March of 1997. And, and what I did, what Jenny and I did, I, I think that we're most proud of is we decided to certainly add energy and add some financial stability. And we added some real estate. We actually bought the theater building that we were in and that sort of thing. But we tried to honor and keep the traditions as much as we could. And, and, at almost every decision, we would always ask, does this honor what Dudley built? And does this honor the tradition of this theater? And it was really clear, and I'm like two weeks into owning the theater, that the theater was way bigger than the people who owned it or even the people on stage. It, it was more of an, an important institution and tradition than it was a business. And so we tried to do that to, for 25 years, and I'm very confident that the Hennepin Theater Trust will do it. But I would say he, he, and he, we just lost Dudley about nine months ago, and he had a wonderful life. But he, I can honestly say he's probably top three most unique humans I've ever met. So this is fifth-generation circus performer who breaks a bunch of bones falling off the high-wire act in Blackpool, England in the early 50s, then moves to New York, starts the Instant Theater Company, which is some of the founding roots of American improvisation as an art form, tours it around the country, falls in love with someone in in Minneapolis, she convinces him to stay, and so he does. And then in May 10th of 1958, leases a coffee shop and starts selling coffee and doing improvisational theater shows as a way to get an audience in. And as they say, the rest is kind of history. And so since that May 10th of 1958, we had never missed a weekend. And here we are with COVID and the doors of the theater are still closed. Yeah, two questions. What I learned from no, go ahead. Please what go. I learned from what I learned from him was a ton more more than I could ever talk about in one show. But I think what I learned from him most was that the gratitude one has for the audience, mm -hmm. and in his case, it was the audience of the theater. But in a broader sense, it's anyone in your life that's providing you revenue or kindness or support. The the people who are there for you, you need to start there, and you, your work has to start with how can I serve my audience? And and he learned that in the circus. They would go from town to town and literally set up the tent. And if it wasn't for that town buying tickets at 50 cents a ticket, 
they didn't have a job. And so there was this love of the customer that I just, I really loved from him. And then the other thing is the, uh, the theme of the theater, the motto of the theater has always been and will continue to be promiscuous hostility, positive neutrality. In other words, if anyone on either side of the aisle, on either side of the argument gets a little bit too big for their britches, it's time to do a comedy sketch about them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've always loved that. And, and Minnesota is an interesting place. We've got this Minnesota nice problem, right, where no one wants to say anything that's a conflict or is awkward and uncomfortable because they're all too busy being nice. And so the Brave New Workshop always has been that place where uh, we would illuminate discussions that most people were too uncomfortable to have. Which kind of leads me to a, a question because it's, it seems like that as an institution, it really is an institution in Minneapolis, that that kind of humor and that kind of approach really is valuable in every city, in every state. And why don't we have that around that much more? Like Second City, you mentioned in Chicago, they oh, do yeah. a very similar kind of thing. Yeah. And maybe I'm just not in tune to that kind of, uh, no pun intended, folks. Sure. I'm just not in tune with that. Right. improv kind of mm-hmm. theater. Right. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think it's a very necessary thing. In general, people in communities are always trying to, to be kind and, and to be good people. I really believe that. But then some of the issues that are uncomfortable to talk about, to legislate about, to build as businesses, to recognize in our own behaviors, those uncomfortable topics are tough because if, if no one's talking about them, and I'll let you guys guide the conversation, but I think in Minneapolis, we learned the lesson that that if we don't talk about a systemic racism problem and don't do anything about it, it will eventually show itself. And the Brave New Workshop did a show in 1968 called the Race Riot Review, which is about some of the race riots that were happening in the north side of Minneapolis in 1968. So we've been trying to illuminate people on this Minnesota nice and, and that we won't talk about uncomfortable things for a long time. So I think it's a necessary part of a community. I think to answer your question, part of the reason why it doesn't exist in every town is because... It's a tough business. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of marketing dollars to get someone to leave their home and turn off the TV or the phone and drive downtown and find parking compared wow. to how much the revenue is, it's a very tough business. And if you're looking at it from a, an ROI standpoint, it, it, it's a tough. We do the corporate training because the, the theater wasn't able to make money. And so we, we use the corporate training to keep the theater alive for 25 years. And has YouTube put the screws on a lot of live entertainment like that? I know you mentioned that the, when the Internet came on, it has its positive things, but it also can draw an audience away and people can sit in the comfort of their home and broadcast that onto their television. Yeah, the uh, there's everyone talks about the 2008 recession and that sort of thing. But for live theater, 1999 to 2003 was when it hit. That's when people realized I can TiVo it, or I I can have my cable company record that show or whatever it is. I can watch anything I want. So to give you an example, Minneapolis St. Paul has the second most theater seats per capita, right behind New York. Wow. And Whoa. we lost. We literally lost a third of our live theaters in three years during that same time period. They just went away. You, you just couldn't. And, and we almost lost the Brave New Workshop. And it wasn't, if it wasn't for this new revenue stream of, of corporate training, we would have lost the Brave New Workshop. There seems to be this, my words, umbrella or cloud over comedy right now that some people think, a joke may inhibit a certain group or a certain thought process or whatever, and people are very conscious now about how they use comedy or improv to 
not poke fun at people or groups, but maybe poke fun at situations to try to illuminate them, as you've discussed? Am I reading too much into that? And I guess, where do you come down on that, that people are like overly sensitive? I've seen some things recently where comedians are like, man, I'm just telling a joke. I'm just trying, I'm not trying to get on anybody or any individual group. I'm telling a joke. Now, when it comes to disparaging a group or people, that's different. Using comedy to disparage is a whole nother, we don't want to do that. But where do you come down with that, John? And, and from the people that you've worked with? Yeah, it's been <clears throat> now coming up on 30 years of asking the question, what do people think is funny and will make them laugh? And then what's an important topic that you need to discuss? Because we're unique in that standpoint, right? We don't write comedy sketches or perform improvisation just for the sake of the laugh. To be on the stage of the Brave New Workshop, it has to have some sort of satirical point, right? You have to be able to talk about something that's important. Not vulgarity for the sake of vulgarity or shock value. None of that stuff exists on our stage. So I've been watching that and where that line is. And and I have to say that there's a good side and, and a tough side of it. The, the good side is you just have at least increased the, the question of, is this offensive or not? And can I expand my understanding of who it could possibly be offensive to? So I'm really for that, right? Like, I have to say, if you looked at some of the stuff that even in 2003 we put on our stage, I look at it now and I cringe and I say, wow, I was really insensitive. I, I let that go on stage and, <clears throat> and I know our intentions were all good, but intentions aren't necessarily always what is the only thing that needs to be considered. So there's things that I put on that stage that I know we were just, we were actually trying to illuminate the right side of the argument, but the, the good side of the argument, we were trying to lift people up. But the words we chose or, or the scenario we created, I wish we wouldn't have put it up. And I think almost every comedic theater or comedian can say that. that said, it is tough. It's tough right now because, to your point, there used to be this, hey, they're just telling a joke or it's a comedy theater. And so, of course, they're there for fun. And, and I think sometimes that was used as an excuse to mm-hmm. do some things that were just simply not the right choices and, and were disparaging. Mm-hmm. So I hope that goes away. But then I think we also, as a society, need a place where we can go and just laugh for the sake of laughter. And it, it got tar- harder and harder in the last five years. I remember the last you know, election show that we did. Actually, I think it was a holiday show. I think it was a show called <clears throat> The Trump That Stole Christmas. And, uh, and again, we always pick on both sides of the aisle. But it had gotten so contentious in the theater that, that we had to have everyone in the theater before the show stand up, raise their right hand, and take a pledge that they acknowledge that they were in a comedy theater. <laughs> and so the purpose of tonight's you know, theater performance was to have fun yeah. and laugh and, cool. and, and make fun of things. Like, we, we literally had him do that. And then, we, then what we did to lighten the load is we played the song from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and put the words to the song on because it's a ridiculous song. So we had everyone sing a song together before the show as a form of unity that we could all be goofy together. <laughs> and, but that wasn't even thought of 10 or 15 years ago. People no. would come to the theater and they would laugh and that sort of stuff. So there's some good things. I, I think there was comedy that was divisive and hurt people. And then it, it's difficult. And so it'll just be interesting to see where it goes next. Now, you talked about the show that you did, and I want to the Minneapolis show about some systemic racism. What year was that? 1968. 1968. Wow. And you don't look that old. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you don't. <laughs> no, I, I, 
I was three years old at the time, so when I say we did a history of the theater. Oh, okay, okay. Right. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't want to say this to disparage any governmental group, but yes, he is. How long does it take to comedy does reveal reality? Oh yeah, and especially satirical comedy. Thank goodness. Have you ever <laughs> done something like that, and then? A governmental entity was like, we really need to do something, and you did see some changes come out from that? I, I think so. I hope so. The Dudley was very close to the politicians in, in the Twin Cities. And again, to show you how change, things would change, <clears throat> very regularly in the 60s and 70s, especially on a Saturday night midnight show, Dudley would just ask, are there any local politicians in the audience? And the mayor might be there, or the council people might be there, or an, an alderman might be there, or an alder person might be there. And he would welcome them up on stage, and they would we would work them into the improvisation, <laughs> and 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 we would take shots at them, and and they would laugh, and and that sort of thing. It was, again, back to that little black book. It was more civil back, and so I think some of it was good, and I think the reason they went to the Brave New Workshop back then was to laugh, but was also to your point, to maybe hear what was on the forefront of the discussions going on, or whether it was public transportation or school issues, because we I, I remember. In 1999, we did a sketch called I Love Tiger Woods, and it, it was a sketch about a very white suburban school district being all excited about bringing students in. But then when they found out that they were bringing students in from the north side of Minneapolis in buses, they were a little bit less excited. And they kept justifying that they didn't really want to bus kids in from the north side of Minneapolis, that they weren't racist, and they, they knew they couldn't be racist because they love Tiger Woods. And we were pushing buttons in 1999 about whether or not segregation in Minneapolis schools still existed. And if you look at, you know, even the statistics today, Minnesota is one of the absolute best states in the country for education in general. And we have the third worst graduation rate for African-American students. Mm. Third worst. Mm. Alabama's better than Minnesota. Mm. And so that was 20 years ago when we were pushing that button then. So... Mm. I do believe that is a wonderful role of satirical theater. If the theater's doing their job, they are listening to w what are some changes that maybe it's the top of the spearhead that we need to really start talking about. Which comes to a, a question I have about your two words here, yes and. Explain that to folks yeah. and how you use that. Yes and. Yeah, and they're certainly not our words. Yes, and are, are you know the two most common words. And if you go and take an improv class anywhere in the world, in that first class, they talk about yes, and it's just a wonderful pair of words. We define it specifically, I think. We look at it as a state of mind. We look at it as a set of behaviors. We look at it as an individual and then group culture. And so for us, the yes is really an acceptance of your current reality. And so on stage, it means this is my team. That's the suggestion we just got from the audience. This is what we got. In, in our training, especially in our corporate world, we, we say that this acceptance of the current reality is your market share, your budget, your technology, your bosses, the, the team that you have. And as improvisers, when we say yes, what we do right after that is we, we reduce the amount of frets that we have. We don't fret about what we don't have. We celebrate what we do have. We don't complain a lot about we, – we have this kind of mindset of abundance instead of scarcity. So that yes means – Here's what we got. Let's make the best of it. And then the and is forward. And is a conjunction. So it takes you to the next word in the sentence. And so it's about what can we build together? How can we move forward in a culture of acceptance and a culture of respect 
to build a solution for our customer, which in the improv is usually a, a good comedy scene, but in, in the corporate world, it's whatever the customer is looking for. So that yes and is that one-two punch. And we literally, in improv, we use it as a conjunction, a, a part of our grammar. We say the words yes and very often. Sometimes it's just as simple as that. If I was improvising with, with you guys and, and I walked in and they said, oh, there's President Nixon. Instead of saying, oh, I, I couldn't be President Nixon because he's passed away, or I don't want to be President Nixon, I, I would just say, hello, it's great to be your president. I would yes and. And so it's not saying yes to everything, especially in our corporate training. It's being in a mindset that says, yes, this is where we're at, and we're going to go forward towards a solution. Now, I can't let you wow. get away without talking about one of my favorite things that you do, Jiggly Boy. <laughs> I've seen the video, <laughs> and I encourage folks yeah, to see the video. Folks, you need to get on, get online and put in the search engine Jiggly Boy, J-I-G-L-Y-B-O-Y. And I have a request, too. You need to make a dad joke book, too, a dad's joke book. Ooh. <laughs> now that you're, you're a dad, you got those two kids with you. I know. You'd probably do yeah, a good dad I think joke. My, son's, my sons would tell you I'm a walking dad joke, that everything about it. me is just one big dad joke. But it's a fun story, and, and it, it, I tell the story a lot in my speeches because in some ways it incorporates a lot of it, – it's, it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever done, and yet in some ways it solidifies how I was raised, what I believe in, what I've learned from Dudley, what I've learned from improvisation, and, and hopefully how we can move forward in this, this world of civility. As part of our business, we developed some creative service products for professional sports teams. And that was because professional sports teams had come to us and said, we need you to make the customer experience a little bit more entertaining. And the teams that we typically work with, the reason they would ask us to make the games more entertaining is because their teams were really bad at the games that they were supposed to be playing. <laughs> and, and the Minnesota Timberwolves, unfortunately, they're a lot better this year, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan, and I hope we make the playoffs, and I know we will. But the Minnesota Timberwolves were an example of not being very good at, at, uh, at the game they played. We used to joke that sometimes I would wonder if basketball was the first sport of everyone on the team because they seemed unfamiliar with the game and, and, and not, not really right. sure of how to do it. And so the Timberwolves asked us to brainstorm with them. What could we do to let these Minnesota nice people know that they can just let their hair down and have some fun at a game? So we created uh, a list of possible things we could do. And one of them was, hey, Sweeney's a Packer fan. And you know, those guys, they, they take off their shirts at the game and just have a fun time, even though it's 20 below. Can we do something like that? And I instantly, even though I'm a yes-and person, I, I instantly said, no, that's just a bad idea. I don't want to do that at all. It's just stupid. How about if we move on? Oh. And for some reason, they, they thought that was a good idea. So a long time ago, the first time Jiggly Boy danced, it was all set up, right? So my, it was just my wife and I, because we didn't have kids yet. And uh, the dance music came on, and I danced with my, I took my shirt off. And, of course, they had all the cameras on me in the arena. And then two of our actors, dressed as police officers, oh, came okay. down. Okay. and took me out of the game. <laughs> and that was all planned. And and what wasn't planned is the arena <laughs> went crazy at halftime, and 119 people went to the customer service desk to demand that that poor fat guy get let back into the game. <laughs> they were really concerned. <laughs> and uh, so in some ways, we did it a little bit too well. They really <laughs> believed it. And so then they brought me back in the game in the third quarter, and the audience just went nuts. And so once they liked the character, we ended up dancing with the dance line a couple of times that year and did a bunch of personal appearances and Jiggly Boy caught on and Jiggly we just Boy. used it as a, a super fan. Then uh, scroll and, and then thank goodness it stopped. 
like, thank goodness it stopped. But we were on the Today Show and ESPN, and this was before you could go viral. Well, then fast forward, and um, and the president of the Timberwolves, Chris Wright, called me and said, I'd like Jiggly Boy to come back because confidentially we're bringing um, Kevin Garnett back to the team. And mm-hmm. Kevin Garnett was the best team, best player ever to play for the team. And they, so they brought him back, and, and it was a big kind of retro night. So that's the video that you see, and that also was set up. So the premise was Jiggly Boy was back, and they were going to ask him to dance again, and he didn't want to do it, and then all of a sudden his kids encouraged him, so then he did it. And so you'll see in that video that we danced, and it went a little bit goofy. Kevin Garnett really appreciated that, so now there's interaction with me and him. But the real story of Jiggly Boy, I, I, I think, is more what I hope your listeners can hear so the next day, my youngest, Michael, came into my office at home and said, Dad, they put the video of us dancing on YouTube on the Timberwolves site. <laughs> I said, that's great. And he goes, yeah, it's got 10,000 views already. Oh, and then my. he came back at noon and said, Dad, there's 100,000 views. And then that first day, we got a million hits wow. on that video. We're, we're at almost 600 million views across Holy the globe, f- half of them being in China right now. And so <laughs> one of the things that... We've tried to done, do as a family, and this is, again, back to where it all sums up for me, and it was how I was raised. When we wake up at the Sweeney family, we ask two questions. Who can we help? What can we build? Who can we help and what can we build? And so I knew with a million hits in the first day, we had something. And I also remember that I just met this wonderful woman named Kim Valentini. Kim is the founder of Smile Network International. And Smile Network International is a Minneapolis-based nonprofit that goes across the globe and does cleft palate surgeries on kids in third world countries. And I remember learning from her that it wasn't just a, a cosmetic thing. It was that if they don't repair that child's face, it can't suckle. And so it can't gain weight. And in third world countries, a third of the kids who are born with a cleft palate perish. So it's a life or death situation. So what I'd love your listeners to do is to actually go to jigglyboy.com. And you can go to jigglyboy.com and watch the video, but you'll see on that jump page, you can also click on Smile Network International and give a dollar if you can. And so we're proud. I check every single morning. We're proud that as of this morning, that little website has funded 419 cleft palate surgeries for kids in third world countries. And so we took this this improvisational, hey, we're just going to go and be uncomfortable. Hey, we're going to say yes and to Kevin Garnett. And then we hopefully took some civility and asked, what can we do to make this world a little bit better place? And, and those 419 kids are, are alive and well because of a fact I danced with his shirt off. So that's the story of Jiggly Boy, and, and I hope it continues to help kids. It was, it was great, and you have some good moves, i, I got to tell you. I should be so lucky well, you to know, get those God, moves, man. Yeah. When God gives you talents, you got you can't. You got to use it. <laughs> okay. you He's use not it. modest at all, is he? Okay. <laughs> John, I we've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and kudos to you and the team for all the things that you have done and that you're doing and going to do. And appreciate the thoughtfulness about how you are really helping others no matter whether you can see them out in the audience or whether they're on the other side of the world. So thank you very much for what you're doing. Great job. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to meet you both. And, and, and our new website is bravenewoutpost.com, and you can go there and see what we do. And, and please go to jigglyboy.com and help bring smiles to kids who really need them. But thank you for this show, too. I got to know it a little bit and went to your website, and, and I think you talk about things that are important and, and that are helpful. And I think if all of us just do a little bit, we can get through this and uh, make it a better world. So thank you for having me. Thank you, John. You yeah. take care, sir. Real pleasure, John. Okay. 
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What, a, what a great guy. Yeah, boy, that hour went fast. Yeah, it, just it really did. flew right by. He, he doesn't know his stuff at all, does he? No, he didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> God, there's so much we could have talked about. Why, I, we need to have him back sometime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that I, was... I want to do a whole show, though, on dad jokes with him. Oh, he'd love Our, that. At least a half hour on dad jokes with him. He, he'd absolutely the, love that. Yeah, I think that'd be the way to go. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Take time to look at the show notes on the website for everything that was mentioned on this episode. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.